1: How lovely to see everyone here. Um, Nice of you to come, ladies and gents. Normally, I suppose we would kick off an evening like this with an introduction that broadly said, Thomas Friedman is a three-times Pulitzer Prize uh, winner. He's described as America's most influential columnist, and he's a best-selling author as well. But as befits the times, I think it's better for me just to say that we've got the best speaker.
2: He's fantastic. You'll
1: never hear a better speaker than this. Thank you. Genuinely, he's the best.
2: Thank you.
1: The others were losers. They're sad. They're dead now. And this building has never been fuller. We've never seen a bigger crowd. I think, actually, that last point is probably true. Um, It's fantastic to see so many here. Tom has just written uh, a book called Thank You for Being Late, and we're going to dive straight in, Tom, and get you to explain what the title means and what your premise is.
3: Well, first of all, I mean, thank you uh, for uh, sharing the stage, and um, it's a treat to be here with you. And, uh, and to Intelligence Squared, and thank you all for coming out. Uh, this is just uh, it's wonderful. Uh, the, the book is called Thank You for Being Late, uh, An Optimist's Guide to Thriving in the Age of Accelerations. Uh, and the title actually comes from meeting people for breakfast in Washington, D.C. over the years, and, um, uh, where I live. And uh, every once in a while, someone would come 10, 15 minutes late, and they'd say, uh, Tom, I'm really sorry, it's the weather, the traffic, the subway, the dog ate my homework. And um, uh, three years ago, uh, one of them, Peter Corsell, did that, and I, I just spontaneously said to him, actually, Peter, thank you for being late. Because you were late... I've been eavesdropping on their conversation. Fascinating. Uh, I've been people-watching the lobby. Fantastic. And most of all, I just connected two ideas I've been struggling with for a month. So thank you for being late. Well, people started to get into it. They'd say, well, well, you're welcome. Uh, Because they understood I was actually giving them permission to to pause, to, to stop and reflect. And what triggered the book was when I paused to engage with someone I wouldn't normally engage with. I uh, live in Bethesda, Maryland, and I um, take the subway to work in downtown Washington, D.C., uh, once a week or so. And three years ago, I did that. I, take the, I drive to the Bethesda Hyatt, and I park in the public parking garage beneath the Hyatt, and I take the red line into D.C. And I did that and came back at the end of the day, I had my time-stamped ticket, got in my car... Uh, drove to the cashier's booth, and the cashier was there, and he looked at it and looked at me and said, uh, I know who you are. And I said, great. Um, he said, I read your column. I said, that's, that's great. Uh, he said, I don't always agree. I thought, get me out of here. Um, <laughs> uh, but I actually said, that's great. It means you always have to check. And, and then I drove off. A week later, I took my weekly trip into D.C. Car, red line, D.C. office, red line back, car, Timestamp ticket, cashier's booth, same guys there. And this time he says, uh, Mr. Friedman, I have my own blog. Would you read my blog? And I thought, oh, my God. The parking guy is now my competitor. <laughs> what just happened? So I said, look, write it down for me, and I'll take a look at it. So he wrote down odinambi.com. And I went home, called it up on my computer, Turns out he was Ethiopian, uh, wrote about Ethiopian politics from the uh, Romo people perspective, a real democracy advocate. Um, I thought about him for a co- couple of days, I told my wife, and finally I decided that this was a sign from God, and I should pause and engage this guy. Uh, I didn't have his email though, so the only way I could do it was park in the parking lot every day, and um, uh, which I did for, I don't remember, four or five days now, and we overlapped. I asked him for his email. Uh, which he gladly gave it to me, and that night, I sent him a, a message, um, and I said, uh, I know his name now, Ayile Bogie." and I said, Ayelet, I have a proposition for you. I will teach you how to write a column, if you will tell me your life story.
1: I thought you were going to go to the free parking, <laughs> whatever.
3: And uh, he said, I see you're proposing a deal, I like this deal. Uh, And so he asked if we could meet at Pete's Coffee House in Bethesda near his office, uh, which we did. And um, uh, to make a long story short, I basically explained to him how how I construct a column. Uh, And he told me his life story. Uh, Ethiopian immigrant, political activist, was basically thrown out of Ethiopia, um, uh, was blogging on Ethiopian websites, but they were too slow. And so he uh, decided to start his own blog. And uh, as he said to me, now, Mr. Friedman, I really feel empowered. it's a wonderful story, and he's a wonderful man, about how anyone can now participate in the global conversation. Um, And I then explained to him uh, just quickly how to write a column, and and the main thrust of it was that, I mean, if the world is a big data set, this is my algorithm. And I basically explained that a news story is meant to inform. I could write a news story about this event that would inform better or worse. Uh, But a column, the business I'm in now, is meant to provoke. So I'm either in the heating business or the lighting business. I either do a heating or a lighting. I'm either stoking emotion up in you or I'm illuminating something for you. And if I do it right, hopefully I'll produce either heat or light or both. Yeah. But I explained to him that to do that required a chemical reaction. And you had to combine three compounds. The first is what's your value set? What are, what's the value set you're trying to push into the world? Are you a communist, a capitalist, a, a, a liberal, a progressive, a neocon, a neoliberal, a Marxist, a Keynesian? What are you pushing? Second, and this is the core of the book um, in many ways. How do you think the machine works? So the machine is my shorthand for what are the biggest forces shaping more things in more places in more ways on more days? Because as a columnist, I'm trying to take my values and push the machine in that direction, and if I don't know how it works, I either won't push it, or I'll push it in the wrong direction. Uh, and lastly, what have you learned about people and culture? Mm. How the machine affects people and culture and how they affect the machine. Stir those together, let it rise, bake for 45 minutes, and if you do it right, you will produce heat or light.
1: And so much of what you write is about the pace of the world now. And I should say, in, in terms of pausing, we're going to talk for about half an hour and then we're going to open it up uh, to all your questions, which we welcome. We can talk about acceleration, inauguration, <coughs> alternative facts, whatever you want. So <coughs> don't feel that um, you are not uh, a part of this. But this, this is very much, Tom, about acceleration. You, you describe the US election as being fought, if you like, between web people and wall people. In other words, people that can get on in a newer economy and the people that feel shut out, imprisoned in the old economy.
3: So, um, well, that's sort of, let me start with how I think the machine works and then I'll, because that's really related to um, uh, the answer to your question. So I think what's shaping more things in more places in more ways on more days and producing that divide you talked about Uh, is the fact that we're in the middle of three nonlinear accelerations all at the same time in the three largest forces on the planet, uh, which I call the market, Mother Nature, and Moore's Law. Mm. So um, uh, the market for me is digital globalization. Not not your grandfather's globalization, which was containers on ships. But actually, um, that's actually going down. But everything that is today being digitized and globalized, that's what's actually making the world feel not just interconnected, but interdependent. If you put it on a graph, it looks like a hockey stick. Um, Facebook, Twitter, PayPal, all those things. Um, uh, Mother Nature is climate change, biodiversity loss, and population growth. If you put it on a graph, it looks like a hockey stick. And um, most importantly, Moore's Law, coined by Gordon Moore, the co-founder of Intel in um, 1965, posited that the speed and power of microchips will double every 24 months. It's now closer to 30 months, but that exponential has held up for 52 years. And that's what's actually driving technology. And when something doubles and doubles and doubles and doubles, um, after a while, you, you get to some really funky things. Um, you get to cars that can drive themselves, computers that can beat any human in jeopardy or chess. In fact, the, the engineers at Intel, to explain the power of the, of the uh, Moore's Law exponential, they once took a 1971 VW Beetle, and they said, what if this car improved at the same rate microchips had? And they determined that the 1971 Beetle today would go 300,000 miles an hour. Uh, it would um, get 2 million miles per gallon, and it would cost 4 cents. So, um, so that's what's actually making everyone feel this acceleration. And um, to your question then specifically, um, there are uh, some people who really relish competing uh, in this world of acceleration, they 're able to, to keep up to learn, to relearn to retool to reengineer, and there are other people who feel completely overwhelmed by it and unmoored by it and dislocated by it uh, and um, The struggle today, I think in america in, in, in the u k in Europe across the world is is really between those those two groups
1: and I wonder if you feel responsible at all. You are often called the high priest of mm-hmm. globalization. You talk, of course, about a kind of responsible globalization, but the truth is that the world that you and so many others, so many of us, imagine, clearly left more people behind uh, than we ever realised.
3: Yeah. Um, Well, you know, obviously this is something. I didn't just start writing about globalization. So I wrote my first book about it in 1999, Um, and um, uh, in some ways, you know, I I think that book is is for me more relevant than ever. Uh, It was called The Lexus and the Olive Tree. And um, the book was arguing that the struggle, post-Cold War, was going to be between our what I call the olive tree, the things that root us and anchor us in the world, identity, community, faith, nationalism, what was old, and what is new, this globalization system. And I, I sort of literally almost drew a graph of one, the olive tree coming up and the globalization thing, and it was all about the interaction. Um, Everything I wrote about globalization, every book I wrote about that or about The World is Flat, I've written the last one, um, always made the point about there's a backlash going on. We have to address, you know, the underlying needs of this. Um, and I don't think we, we did that effectively as, as societies um, uh, and in the West. At the same time, you know, 300 million people in India and China came out of poverty faster than any time in the history of the world in the same system. So people were, the middle classes in the West were really damaged by the system in many ways. But if you look at it globally, the number of people who were benefited from it are also enormous. And I think you have to keep that in perspective.
1: Yeah, because we're at this moment of history where you can see a pendulum, can't you? And Donald Trump comes into office day one, executive orders to cancel the Trans-Pacific Partnership, rewriting the (coughs) rules of global trade. Um, There will be plenty i imagine in america who say thank god he did that that was his campaign promise that was a key tenet of his pledge to de-globalize to put america first do you have to now go along with this and say yeah we we got a lot of that wrong and we have to listen to this or is that a correction that is going to create many more problems than it solves
3: well, you know, I think the challenge for us and for the UK uh, specifically is, you know, what happens when you disconnect in a connected world? And, um, you know, I tell people, Emily, when in the middle of writing this book, I broke my shoulder. And uh, I tripped on a hike. And, and um, there's something, the first thing you learn when you break your shoulder is it's connected to everything. <laughs> okay? Uh, it's connected to your stomach muscles, your fingers, your lower back. And um, I think when, uh, as we disconnect from... Some things, as the u k is uh, disconnected from uh, the e u it will discover it 's connected to so many more things and what's what 's always worried me is not that like the e u was perfect or that <coughs> or that we had it uh, perfect in the NAFTA or TPP um, but I do feel that uh, some people have been playing with big systems, and that um uh, rather than fix things, really think. Carefully, what's right, what's working, what's not working. There's kind of EU, I'm tired of it. We're, we're just going to break it. TPP, get rid of it. Um, NAFTA, I'm done with that. And not so, really p- thinking through all the implications.
1: Just to come <coughs> come back on that one then, you think Brexit was about being tired of the EU, or you think it was about.
3: Oh, I think what? it was complicated. I think it was, Brexit was a lot in common with what, what drove Trump in, in many ways. Um, and by the way, it wasn't all about trade. Um, you found, I found, at least in my reporting, I'd be interested to know what you found, Trump was fed by many streams. One stream was a real backlash against political correctness. It had nothing to do with trade. All I'm saying is this is a complicated phenomenon. It's not just about TPP. It was a rebellion against elites. Uh, it was a rebellion against um, immigration. Uh, that too, And it was a rebellion against so much change uh, it was a rebellion against stagnant incomes for middle classes, and that's why all I say is, if it's about all these things, and we need to disaggregate each one, understand the problem, and, and try to fix that problem.
1: I want to go back to the political correctness Please. one because I think it's one of you know the most fascinating questions of our time yeah. now. Um, did did political correctness, <clears throat> did identity politics? Um, do for the left in terms of the last election, did they put too much emphasis? You know, many of us will remember the the list of of kind of minorities that Hillary Clinton said she had on board. And, you know, the poor white man wasn't on the list. Now, again, we're in this difficult position, aren't we, where you start saying, oh, she shouldn't have bothered, she shouldn't have bothered with the North Carolina bathroom debate, Mm. you know, the transgender and all this stuff. Or do you lose something absolutely fundamental to the way society is progressing by doing that? What's your take?
3: Um, Well, I I certainly support uh, all these inclusive uh, measures we've taken in our country, whether it's gay marriage or uh, LGBT rights, all of these things. I think that you can support those, though, and at the same time uh, understand that a lot of these changes for some people in some communities seem to come very fast, faster than they could adjust. So, you know, if you think of, of this moment, I, I think of America, you know, uh, I'm from Minnesota. Um, and I remember my aunt and uncle actually lived in central Minnesota. I'm from a smaller town slash suburb outside of Minneapolis. And I remember the first time my um, aunt and uncle told me that they had all these Hispanic foods at the grocery store. Um, and this was something they had to get used to. This was a 99% white, you know, uh, Protestant Catholic community in the... In the Central Minnesota, my aunt and uncle were the only two Jews in the town. And so it was like I saw that world through them. And so I think a lot of people, you know, they found themselves, they go to the grocery store, someone's wearing a head covering. It's, it's one that's not uh, natural to them. It's, it's foreign. Um, they they uh, go into the, the men's room or the women's room, you know, and they encounter people they don't expect. I celebrate all that myself, but I can understand um, how this hits some people very quickly. Then they go to work, and their boss rolls up a robot, who seems to be studying their job. And so if you think of the things that anchor us in the world, home, uh, community, and work, I think all of these have been uh, unmoored for some people, because clearly others have really welcomed this and and celebrated it, but for some people at a critical mass and scale that has certainly contributed to the rise of Trump.
1: But Tom, this would make sense if you Mm -hmm. weren't talking about America. Mm-hmm. This is the land of right. immigrants. This is the land of communities. This is the New York that has forever had, you know, the Greek bit and the Asian bit and the Chinatown and the Jewish bit and right. all the rest of it. So, you know, help me unpick that then. Why suddenly, and I know it's not just America and it's, you know, it's all over the world, but why why do we have to kind of relook at the sense of... of of change and, and what difference or immigration means in a country ha- which has actually been built on all those different yeah. peoples and, and traditions and customs?
3: Well, I'm a big fan of the work of Benjamin Friedman, no relation, he's a Harvard economist, and um, uh, he's always made the point that um, pluralism and economic growth are really intertwined. Mm. That is, when the pie is growing um, in a community or a state, it's just so much easier to welcome the other, um, because everything is growing for everybody. But as we entered a period, um, uh, starting in the um, mid-1970s, where um, not only did middle-class wages stagnate, um, excuse me, but the pace of change became very fast. So I tell the story in the book that... um, So I I was born in 1953 um, in Minneapolis, and... um, uh, There's a congressman, a Minnesota congressman, I quote in the book, who said, you know, growing up in Minnesota, if you were an average worker in Minnesota in the 50s, 60s, you actually needed a plan to fail. You needed a plan to fail. That is, there was so much white-collar and blue-collar work because at that time, America, post-World War II, really stood astride the global economy uh, in, in such a dominant way. In fact, my uncle, my dad's brother, was a loan officer at the local bank and he only graduated from high school. So there was just such an updraft of of work for people with average education, frankly. Um, I think what's changed, what flipped because of this age of acceleration is is now you need a plan to succeed and you have to update it every six months. Um, there's a, a consultant at, uh, at BCG, uh, Martin Reeves is very smart and the other day he gave me his new business card, and he says he now changes it once a week. It's got a list of all the things he's thinking about, and he updates it once a week, and I thought that's, that's sort of the, the outer edge of where this is going.
1: <laughs> it, don't we evolve? I, mean, I always remember that. I'm sure the audience will know it. The, the um, British comedian Michael McIntyre, just, I don't know if he know. rings a bell. And Michael McIntyre talks about doing a thumb war with his son, you know, mm-hmm. this one where you yeah. do this and he's like, you know, I can beat my son any time. And then he realized that the son had grown up texting yeah. and he had the strongest thumb muscles in <laughs> the world. So, you know, this whole idea now yeah. that we, we do evolve. We, you know, things get quicker and we do manage. We, we haven't actually been caught out by going, I don't understand. There's a car, you know, no. how do yeah. I make the horse and cart work? We, yeah. we understand the horse and cart has to go, right?
3: So, um, uh, we, we, uh, we do evolve, but we don't evolve, A, that quickly. And, B, in many ways, my book is an argument for de-evolution. Um, uh, I mean, the subtext of the book is that, in my view, everything that matters today, it's all the stuff you cannot download. It's all the stuff you have to upload the old-fashioned way, one human being to another. And that's really what I'm celebrating, and, and um, I... Uh, you know, I have an interview in the book with our Surgeon General, who's a remarkable man, Vivek Murthy, and um, Indian American. And he, um, I was interviewing him with something else, and we got on the subject of disease. And I asked him, what are the, What's the most prevalent disease in America today? Is it cancer, a diabetes, or heart disease? And he said, It's none of those, it's isolation. And I thought, Wow. We live in the most connected age in history, and the Surgeon General of the United States is telling me really the most pervasive disease in the country is people feeling isolated. And um, uh, I, I think that that's a really important thought to keep in mind. I wrote a column with my uh, teacher and friend, Dove Seidman, a couple of weeks ago, in which because people are wondering where the new jobs going to come from. And, um, and Dove was making the point that for many generations, we work with our hands. Uh, And then in the modern era, we began to work with our heads. Uh, But in the age of acceleration, we're going to work more with our hearts. And we're really going from hands to heads to hearts. And connecting hearts is going to be a very big career.
1: You won't like this segue, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Go for it. One of the things that the Trump campaign did was exactly that. He connected with hearts. He managed to get emotion onto the campaign trail. I'm sure you were at the rallies. I was at the rallies. They were noisier and they were more passionate than any other one that I attended, and I I did a lot. So the question is, if the left wants to get back into the business of winning, does it have to find an emotional
3: Mm -hmm.
1: message of politics? Does that sound like the right way, or or would you consider that to be a, a sort of a populist trap? How
3: would you? No, I think it's a very um, important insight, it's one that I share. I'm a big believer, Emily, that that, uh, people actually don't listen through their ears, they listen through their stomachs. And if you, as a leader or reporter, connect to someone on a gut level, their usual attitude is, don't bother me with the details. And if you don't connect with them on a gut level, you can't show them enough details. Could I see that third point you made uh, just one more time? And so what was Hillary Clinton's most off-quoted line in this campaign? Visit my website. www.hillaryclinton. <laughs> it wasn't connecting at the gut level. it was visit my website. And um, and I, I was making this point. I have a friend Leon here. he's a brilliant writer. And Leon Wieseltier once described Yitzhak Rabin, the Israeli prime minister, as a bastard for peace. Okay? And I think that's what the left needs in America. They need a, a, someone who can connect with people on a gut level but take them in a progressive direction forward, not where Trump wants to take them, which I believe is to a dark corner backward. And that's what the left needs. Obama had some of that, um, not all of it. Bill Clinton had some of that. Um, but uh, I don't see anyone on the national stage in America today who really has that.
1: In all honesty, when you look at your um, your countrymen and women, you, you described it as, as reckless, essentially, yeah. to vote him in. Yes. I mean, do you do you find it unforgivable that they would do that, or do you do you have a real do you have a moment of saying who are the people? No, because there were, yeah. obviously, yeah. you know, he didn't win the popular vote, but there were plenty of people who voted right. for him. So yeah. what does that do to you versus the rest of America?
3: Well, for me as a reporter, that sends me on a quest to want to understand this. But one of the most beguiling things about it is that there was a lot of overlap between people who voted for Barack Obama and then voted for Trump. So, again, to just reduce this to a racial thing, a white lash, as some people called it, that, um, that, that's not right either that people were so starved for change. They saw Bar- Barack Obama as the change agent you know, versus McCain, and they saw Trump as the change agent, you know, ver- ver- that that's what they were voting for. That They were so starved for radical change that they were ready to do this.
1: I'm sure we'll get into um, Trump and the media a bit later, but just from a very um, personal perspective, as Robert was saying, Donald Trump had a meeting with the New York Times on his i don't know first week, certainly, um, just take us inside that. How did that go what was is everyone falling over backwards now to you know, get the interviews get the i mean
4: um it was weird. I mean, it was. Uh, I have to say, it
3: was because uh, uh, I. I uh, well, we were in the boardroom of the New York Times. very august place, and and um, uh, President Elect uh, Trump came in, and I was actually up there early because um, I just got there early because of all the traffic and security, and so I was there when when his Secret Service detail arrived about a minute before he did, and. Um, uh, his Secret Service detail consists of plainclothes uh, people, you know, the guys with all the things in their ears, um, and then a, a SWAT team of uh, kind of ninja guys in these black outfits and everything. And um, when I saw the SWAT team, I said, oh, my God, he's president of the United States. Yeah. Uh, he came in. He sat down. He's very friendly. We, as I told him, we know each other um, uh, I actually know him from the world of golf, not from anything else. I've, pl- I've never played with him, but I've played on his courses before. And, and we've, we, we used to talk, I mean, occasionally, because he would call me up about columns. And um, uh, so basically, <clears throat> he sat down and I asked the first question. And I said, um, you didn't actually talk, which was true during the campaign, much about climate change what is your view on that subject? And I was deliberately trying to get him on the record, one one way or the other. And um, he said, I have an open mind uh, on that. He said, I think there's some human uh, involvement, but we don't know how much, but I have an open mind. I called a friend afterwards and told him that. He said, you know, there's a very small difference between an open mind and no mind, okay? So, um, uh, so, um, uh, I only say that because the next day, Al Gore, uh, uh, Ivanka Trump brought Al Gore uh, to meet with her father. And um, I actually then wrote my column that night. And, um, uh, and I said, good for Al Gore for going to meet with him. Uh, good for Ivanka for making it happen. And good for Donald Trump um, for, for meeting with Al. <clears throat> An hour after my uh, column went up, basically, or co with it, I don't remember the exact timing. Trump announced the head of the new head of the Environmental Protection Agency. So we have, I believe, um, uh, 335,484 Americans, and he found the worst <laughs> one um, uh, of all those three hundred million plus to run the EPA. You couldn't have found. A worse person, the uh, Attorney General uh, of uh, um, Oklahoma, Bruce, whose career has been suing the EPA. Okay, <laughs>
1: and trying to s- dismantle it.
3: And so you do see something like that, and say, "What? What am I doing? What, what, what happened? I mean, what, what is this about? You know, what was he thinking?" Um, and uh, we've now seen that pattern, you know, over and over again. Do you think Donald and-
1: Trump is smart?
3: Um, I think he's clever. I think he's very clever about people. He understands what moves them, particularly around power, money, and sex. And um, I think he's clever in that way. Um, but I don't think you can be smart if you don't read. And, um, uh, and I don't think you can be smart if you aren't constantly reporting. And the danger of this moment, Emily, is that you know we are in an accelerating world. And... Um, when you're in an in an accelerating world, when, when you're, you know, when you're in a car um, driving five miles an hour and you only need to go fifty miles an hour, fifty miles, small errors in navigation have little effect. You can get off track and back on track with little pain. When you need to go ten thousand miles and you're going thousand miles an hour, small errors in navigation can have enormous consequences, and that's what I fear. That someone who comes in, you know, Trump won. Uh, the presidency with one paragraph on every subject. Uh, that's all he had. And some of them weren't even a paragraph. Okay? Uh, get rid of TPP. Take on China. Partner with Putin on ISIS. Um, all of these things. So Hillary, Trump only had a first paragraph. Hillary only had a second paragraph. <laughs> yeah. And it had no topic sentence. Okay, <laughs> so, um, uh, and, 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 and so what you're now seeing unfold is all the second paragraphs for Trump. So um, let's take TPP, I mean, you see the contradictions. He says, uh, we're gonna stand up to China. (coughs) So he called me up and said, uh, hey Tom, I'm gonna stand up to China. (coughs) Excuse me, what should I do? Um, I'd say, you're gonna stand up to China, that's interesting. Here's what I would do. I would form uh, an 11 nation trade alliance, okay? (laughs) Um, Of people who share our values, okay? (laughs) who are aligned with us, will have good environmental and labor... Let's just call it TPP, okay? So the same day that he's destroying this trade alliance, just junking it, again, without real study, I would bet... You know, I did a column during the campaign, and it was called, If Only Trump Had Negotiated TPP. And I went, I said, if Trump had negotiated this, we would have gotten labor rights, we would have gotten this, we would have gotten that environment... And, of course, the kicker was we got all of those things and it was negotiated by the neighborhood organizer, okay, that I would bet any amount of money. He's never read TPP. He has no clue what's in it or what the implications of trash. So this is incoherent. He says, so he calls the next day and he says, Tom, I'm going to take on ISIS. We're going to fight the Russia, with the Russians against ISIS. I say, really? Really? Um, Uh, Do you think the Russians have been fighting ISIS? Okay, they haven't been. They've actually been fighting the moderates in Syria uh, because the Russians aren't looking to develop pluralism and democracy in Syria. They're looking to install, ensconce, and cement Bashar Assad, a genocidal dictator, in power in Syria. And their allies are Hezbollah Iran and a group of basically mercenaries from Central Asia. Are they going to be our allies? That's the second graph. And you can take every one of these down the line. Um, uh, today's de- deregulation. He we, we brought back the, you know, the, the oil pipeline. The
1: only, the, and I'm going to stop off this because I'm, I'm monopolizing and I don't want to. We'll open that up. But I would say the only counter to that is mm-hmm. if you are Trump or if you're a Trump supporter, you come in and you say, you know, how's that Not having Putin in the Syria thing working out for you. Nobody else solved the problem. They didn't solve the problem of globalization. Mm -hmm. They didn't solve the problem of automation leaving people behind. They didn't solve the problem in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So actually, he just wants, he's an iconoclast, right? Mm -hmm. He wants to break everything up and start again. An optimist would say there is as much chance of him succeeding in whatever convoluted or Mm -hmm. crazy way he chooses than there is of anything else that's gone before which hasn't worked.
3: Well, I think you raise a very good point. I mean, some things are true even if Donald Trump believes them, you know. And, and I think, um, <laughs> uh, and I think uh, liberals, you know, have to keep that in mind. I mean, I think actually um, a, a more aggressive... Here's what I think... You, let's go back to your first question. Kind of what happened here and what did I miss? You know, here's what I think I missed. Um, uh, so, China joins the WTO in 2001. And, um, uh, and it engages in, you know, it's, it, it has a much more industrial approach to the industrial policy approach to things, much more mercantilist approach. But we tolerate it because we want to get into their market. But over time, they end up, um, and this is on the basis of the study by David Ortur, you know, um, between dumping and, and uncompetitive practices, they probably wiped out something. Uh, estimated between 2 and 3 million American jobs. Now, uh, economists will tell you, free trade benefits the society as a whole. It grows GDP. It hurts a minority of people and tends to benefit more people through more efficient production and lower prices. But that was true when you could jump from the farm to the factory, from the factory to services, from services to knowledge work. And I think what happened is that China train came up this track and suddenly, and this is partly what my book is about, the artificial intelligence, machine learning, software train came down this track much faster. And so when these people wanted to jump, there was the, no. the, this machine was eating all of these white-collar and blue-collar middle-skill jobs. And I think that crushed a lot of people in between. I think that's what happened. But that's a serious problem, and you've got to think seriously about it.
1: We've got about 35 minutes, uh, and I'm going to take questions if we can. We've got roving mics. Number two is there. There's a uh, gentleman right here. Number one.
4: Um, heart decency, etc. What about sheer lying? Because there was a fabulous article in the FT today by Gideon Rickman, mm-hmm. which puts the President of the United States in the dock uh, for lying consistently throughout the campaign, and now that he's president, puts the whole American administration at serious risk. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
1: Okay, thank you very much. And number one, sir.
0: Yeah, my name is Anis Kadri. I'm an avid reader of your columns thank and you. books, and I've met you before. Mm-hmm. Um, my question is, now that we have a reckless president in the U.S., what are the chances that he could get impeached within a year or so?
1: Mm-hmm. Right, good. Number three. Madam, you're... you're I've lost your hand now. You have the mic, yes.
0: Yes, thank you. My question was actually similar. In the age of acceleration, how long does a president have (laughs) to do anything? Hmm. And what happens in terms of the journalistic reaction? How free do you feel to still comment and and judge what happens every day in Washington?
3: Good good questions, all of them. So um, the first was on lying. Lying. And it's a very good uh, question. And so... um, I woke up this morning in London and first did is fire up my computer and read my newspaper, um, the New York Times, and in the left-hand off-lead of the paper, what we call, was the headline that said, Trump repeats his lie that uh, four million people voted illegally in the last campaign. So on the front page of the New York Times, in the headline, we said, the president lied. And um, we started doing this during the campaign, and now we will do it regularly. So he will not be able to get away with that. Um, but what's sad is that um, it, I don't think it will stop him. I, I can only tell you what I've written. This is a man who lies as he breathes. Okay? And, so, um, uh, uh, and I think he's capable of saying anything to anyone at any time. And I think where you'll see that problem manifest itself first... Besides the corrosive effect that has on the general public. Because when you do that as a campaigner, that's one thing. But when you do it with the seal of the President of the United States in front of you, or standing before a wall of fallen you know, war heroes, um, it's just so incredibly corrosive. And it's what's, when I said to Emily, it's just disorienting to me. I, n- I never believed I would, I would see such a thing. And what really worries me is what will he say four years from now if he loses the election. Impeachment. Um, you know, hard to predict, uh, impossible to predict. Uh, what worries me, though, is that the amount of disruption that America would have to experience for a Republican majority to impeach Donald Trump would affect every pun- everyone directly or indirectly probably in the world. Um, and so that's a, that's a horrible thought to me. I mean, uh, uh, I... Um, uh, just the scale of disruption, and what do you get? Then you got Mike Pence, homophobic, abortion banning, um, uh, climate denying. You know, he's just a nicer version. You know of. Uh, remember, they're they're pals. He chose them for a reason. You know, um, and so so it's very disturbing. You know, um, and I think it's very important for. Moderate Republicans, for for liberals, progressives, the thing about Trump uh, is that he can literally vacuum your brains out. You know, he can just, you know, write out. Because um, when you engage with him every day, if you write about him every day, and this is what I find as a journalist, you know, I'm trying to ration the amount of time I write about him, because it'll make you crazy.
1: Let's get some more questions. I can see you now. this gentleman here, this lady here, and let me go to... Somebody uh, please, way up there. So, right, yeah. y- yes, he's wearing yellow for a yes. reason. Yeah.
3: <laughs> you got it, up there.
1: Right there, number four, thank you. Whoever's got the mic first, just wave at me. Yes, fine, yellow man.
2: Please. Um, sorry. Yes, uh, I wanted very briefly to ask you why all the creative genius of Hollywood is unable to come up with an emotional message. Um. But the serious, the other question I wanted to ask is why is the case for trade so hard to make? And why hasn't it been made? I mean, all Hillary Clinton or anyone like that had to do is wave an iPhone around and say, how many American jobs did this create that weren't there before it? And where did it come from? It came from China. And if you didn't have one of these, you got a Samsung which comes from China and Korea. Why is that case so hard to make?
3: Thanks, Dad. I'm really glad you came.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm going to take two more. So
0: um, in this age of acceleration where you have something um, happening that's terrifying with the EPA, um, something like climate change, we don't really have four years. We need to take action now. So what do you think the future is going to look like through this presidency if he doesn't get impeached or regardless if we end up with Pence? And then also, what can we do besides just thinking about it? Is there any action that we can take to do something um, if if our government is failing
3: us?
1: Great. Thank you. Um, We're going to st- I think let's start at the back and move forward. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I absolutely could
3: not agree with you more. You know, um, And it was why I wrote about TPP the way I did. Um, remember, TPP was not... It was negotiated by Barack Obama. Um, it is the first truly liberal trade agreement. Uh, it has worker rights, environmental rights. Um, now, I don't, I'm not naive about them, but the fact that we, it has uh, all kinds of human trafficking uh, regulations directed at Malaysia, in fact. Um, uh, labor rights directed at Vietnam. It gave us a platform to actually now raise these issues with these com- countries. And, um, uh, And had I been Hillary Clinton, I thought it was just so terrible that she she said what people knew was patently false, which is that she had called it the gold standard, and then when she ran, she said, um, it's not good enough, because she felt she was losing her left flank. And um, rather than saying, Bernie, um, I don't even think you've read this agreement. Here's what it stands for. Here's what's in it. It's not perfect. And when I get in, I'll try to make it better. But I'm going to stand by this. I think people would have seen or forget the issue as a, as a leader, if nothing else. And, you know, it, it's really a subtext of our, our whole conversation here. I mean, I spent the last three years, this, all I did was work on this book and write my column, basically, and heal my shoulder, um, I, trying to figure out what's going on. Um, And I don't know if I got it right, but all I know is I did spend three years trying to figure out what's going on, how this interaction between climate, globalization, and technology isn't just changing the world, but reshaping five realms, politics, geopolitics, ethics, community, and um, uh, um, uh, the workplace. And if you don't do that, if you're not ready to do that, This world will come up and bite you in the bottom. And these people basically have been running for office for two years. So they really haven't been studying, thinking about, you know, these trends. And and, and so the more complicated the world gets, the more you need people who are ready to talk honestly to citizens. And people get it. You know, if you don't trust people with the truth, guess what? They don't trust you back.
1: There is, yep, certainly, number two,
0: great... Um, I was at the Women's March, maybe some of you were there, Um, and I'm an American living in London, and I have to say I feel a little bit slighted that we got all this great press, but mostly in comparison to how many people turned out for the inauguration, Mm -hmm. and very little substantive press about what does it mean, what could it mean, and as far as I'm following, it was the biggest demonstration worldwide, maybe ever. So what are your thoughts about the Women's March? Mm -hmm.
1: Coming back to that, uh, yes?
2: If we look at the, at the last uh, six-odd years, one thing that really is striking is uh, in the 30s and 40s, the left gave leadership. If we look at the since then, we had Thatcher, and then we had Reagan, and today we have Trump. The left is just not offering mm. any leadership whatsoever.
1: Okay, interesting. Let's start with the women's yeah, um, uh, march.
3: Uh, my wife was at the march too, as was my daughter. Um, so uh, they were actually sending me pictures of their favorite signs um, uh, all day. <laughs> and I actually caught the... I happened to arrive at, in London um, at the one here. Um, and my reaction to it uh, was very simple. Um, that It's just a tremendously important sign of health. Uh, health of, uh, that the society isn't dead, not men or women, but that, that people are ready to uh, stand up and be mobilized. But ultimately, um, it's got to be maintained. That the march has to become a movement. The movement has to be propelled by a set of ideas. The ideas have to understand and be able to address the problem. And so, to me, the, the fact that there was a march, um, just as an American, I'm speaking to the one in, in Washington, and all these cities across the country... Um, was just a reaffirming sign of health of the society, that people aren't just going to take this sitting down. I hope, though, because it's got to be maintained, and um, it's got to be connected, and, and ultimately it's going to need a leader in a platform uh, or a set of leaders in the platform. And um, and that's why I'm doing my, my column for tomorrow And just what are my early ideas about you know, how do we think about these issues connecting to the gut of those people who might have voted for Trump? And how do we think about um, where do we start to um, remediate what they're doing, what they're feeling, but in a progressive way, not in this backward looking way?
1: And this is the same answer for climate change protesters, for anyone who's taking on the causes that feel that they're getting drowned out now. Yeah,
3: you know, um, on the climate question, um, Trump did say one intriguing thing when he came to the New York Times, which I noted in my column. um, And he said... uh, um, These are my words, not his, but I I, I underscored the way he said it, is that, um, you know, if I change on climate change, the debate's over, Mm. you know. It was an arrogant thing to say, but he was basically saying that, you know, if somehow we can get to this guy... uh, the whole Republican opposition would collapse. Can I, and, um, can it, I
1: just go back to the, the, is, la- the lady who asked the question? Huh? Is your sense that if it had been a civil rights march or if it had been something th- that had been more visibly about one issue, it would have had more pickup? Do, do, do you feel that there was a, a I don't I, know, a quiet sort I, of... I
0: feel like it didn't feel threatening. Right. Regardless of the fact that it immobilized Washington, Chicago, mm-hmm. Los Angeles, yeah. London. And I think about past demonstrations and marches and the subsequent um, news and coverage. The, even Occupy Wall Street at the beginning, people were scared of what that could mean. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I have to think that it's partly because it's women um, and we're not scary enough. And the comment and the focus today on Madonna's one sort of inappropriate comment is the only scary thing that came up, as if Madonna's really going to go blow up the White House. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I feel like um, perhaps... I I wouldn't
1: overdo the source of that one comment.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But, no, I mean, it's just that's what's been covered today on CNN. It's covered on Fox News. It's covered... You know, it's a belittling, I feel, of the messages that were far stronger and the numbers of people that turned out men, women, old, young. Um, And thanks to the Brits, who I feel it was also... um, against Brexit far more than any of the British press covered. Um, and I think that was a bit planned as well. Maybe that's my it, conspiracy theory. It's
1: such an interesting question, the bigger question, which is do you have to be slightly threatening to be a, a loud protest? You know, do you actually have to suggest that you're going to overturn you know, the status quo for, to, to get taken seriously? Um, I, I don't want to spend too long on that because I, I do know we've got um, the gentleman who talked about left given up on leadership, all the leadership seems to be coming from the right now. How would you explain that in sort of macro terms?
3: Trump wants to protect every job. and He's running around tweeting about companies and trying to protect every job. Uh, When you're really, your role, uh, I think, as leader today, is to protect every worker. And those are two different things. And um, the theme of my book is, um, and it actually ties these two questions together, uh, Um, is that I think the proper governing unit um, in the 21st century is not going to be the nation-state, because in the age of acceleration, it's just too slow and paralyzed. It cannot keep up with these changes. We still need nation-states, obviously, for for armies and central banks and currency and and, and retirement, etc. But um, I don't think it's going to be the dynamic unit. It's also not going to be, at the other extreme, the single family, because I think it's too frail against these accelerations. And at least in my country, we have way too many single-parent households. So I think actually the proper, the ideal governing unit in the 21st century is going to be the healthy community. Um, and uh, that's where my, my book really concludes. And what I learned in traveling around the country uh, for the last three years, you know, if you want to be an optimist about America, um, this whole Trumpian view of carnage is us is such a fraudulent picture of America. Uh, Because if you want to be an optimist about my country, stand on your head, because the country looks so much better from the bottom up than from the top down. And not everywhere, but we have a lot of healthy communities, and I come from one. And what do these healthy communities have in common? They've built governing coalitions that bring together the business community, The local public school system, the local university system, the local philanthropic community, and the local government to create an education to work to lifelong learning pipeline to serve the community. So the businesses are connected to the global economy and they translate now much more quickly the skills and knowledge that you need to serve in that economy. They translate that, this is an important point, Uh, they translate that into the local school system, they partner with the universities, the philanthropies support all kinds of models um, and experimentation around that. And they're really working.
1: Right. We will come to you. You're number two. Let's start oh, with sorry.
3: you. Jonathan
2: Lass. Um, first, could I just say how much I'm sure we've all enjoyed this wonderful evening with you. you. Appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you. also, thank you. my wife, who's, a, who's American, and I have been a hugely inspired and reassured by your column over the last Thank you. three decades and Thank your you. books. Thank you. Um, you touched on a couple of things in your last couple of remarks, which may provide the antidote, but I was going to ask you about, are you anxious about the future of the United States, both domestically and its role internationally, uh, particularly with the depiction of, that uh, President Trump has given of the United States as a broken country, in a broken society where there are riots, drug addicts, and, and uh, almost, almost civil war. Um, and therefore, what is the answer then to deal with the, the, the American dream and the strength of the United States in combating uh, his influence going forward?
1: Thank you, sir. And last one. Um, during the campaign, uh, Donald Trump said that he saw NATO as obsolete, and yet today, uh, his new defense secretary has phoned um, key players in NATO, including uh, ourselves, um, and said that the uh, U.S. Uh, relationship with NATO is unshakable. Um, Does that send a signal that Trump is prepared to listen to people Mm. potentially wiser Mm. than him? Mm. Or do you think the new defense secretary will be fired? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Lovely.
3: Um, On NATO, uh, I I just think this is the first, it's a very good question you asked. It's just the first of, of, uh, that's going to be a daily occurrence. Trump said this, but his secretary of health and services said this, he said this. Because on the campaign, he would just say anything to anybody. Um, that, seriously, that would serve his interests, you know. And so um, uh, now the the real world weighs in. What, what worries me most um, behind your question is Trump comes out of the real estate world. And the real estate world um, is, in, in many cases, it's a win-lose world. Uh, the more uh, you lose, the more I win. Boy, did I steal that house from you. Being America after 1945... We, our whole foreign policy was really a positive sum game. It was about win-win. Um, you know, I, I am the blessed uh, beneficiary. Uh, I got my uh, graduate degree at Oxford, uh, courtesy of, of you all, of British taxpayers. I had a Marshall scholarship that the British government created in gratitude for the Marshall Plan, which we extended. Um, uh, we basically gave money to Europe to, to recover from the war and help build this amazing uh, society here of uh, dem- democracies and, and uh, uh, of free people and, and free markets and free ideas. I don't know how much that cost us, but whatever it cost us is a fraction of the benefits we drew. And so Trump talks like about South Korea, at least during the campaign, like it's a Korean barbecue in Trump Tower that it wasn't paying enough rent, you know? Uh, Mr. Kim, you're not paying enough rent, you know, um, and like uh, when you do that in real estate, maybe that works, but when you do that in geopolitics, Mr. Kim freaks out and gets a nuclear weapon, you know, okay, <laughs> and, um, and then, then the sushi restaurant next door goes, oh my God, the Kims have a nuke, you know, I'm going to get one too, and then the Chinese restaurant across the street goes crazy, and suddenly the world starts fraying at the edges, And so um, uh, I think Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, is a serious person. Um, I think Rex Tillerson is a serious person. He wouldn't have been my choice, but I think he's a serious person. Um, And so one hopes that they will... uh, The weight of those people and and our national interests will will weigh on him. So that's the best answer I can give. Um, Let me try to broaden your question, because we're we're near the end, um, uh, to... What am I most worried about? Um, And and here, I I want to talk about one particular chapter uh, in the book, because it's one that surprises people. um, This is a book about accelerations, and I say how it's, it's reshaping five realms, and one of them is ethics. People say, what does ethics have to do with all this? So the chapter is called, Is God in Cyberspace? And it comes from the best question I ever got on book tour. 1999, I'm in Portland, Oregon. I'm selling Lexus and the olive tree. And in question time, like this, a man stood up in the balcony and said, Mr. Friedman, I have a question. Is God in cyberspace? And I said, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh, I have no idea. And I felt like an idiot. So I went home and I called one of my really best Spiritual teachers. He's a Talmudic scholar. I got to know when I was the New York Times correspondent in Jerusalem. His name's Svi Marks. He lives in Amsterdam. He's married to a Dutch priest, a very interesting guy. I called him in Amsterdam. I said, Svi, I got a question I never had before. Is God in cyberspace? What should I have said? He said, Well, Tom, in our faith tradition, we have two concepts of the Almighty. One is that He's Almighty. He smites evil and rewards good. And if that's your view of God. He sure isn't in cyberspace, which is full of pornography, gambling, cheating, lying, prevarication, and now we know fake news, okay? (laughs) Um, But he said, fortunately, we have a post-biblical view of God that says God manifests himself by how we behave. So if we want God to be in cyberspace, we have to bring him there by how we behave there. We're now living a majority of our lives in cyberspace. We in the developed world. It's where we find a date. It's where we find a spouse. It's where we do business, buy our books, get our news, do our commerce. Our lives are being led now in a realm where we're all connected, but no one's in charge. There's no 1-800-STOP-PUTIN-FROM-HACKING-ME-TO-CALL when you're in cyberspace. There's no judge, no court, no stoplight. So that means we're now living our lives in a giant realm that is God-free. But that's not the only thing that's going on. These accelerations have amplified the power of men and machines so much that we're now standing at a moral intersection we've never stood at before. In 1945, we entered a world where one country could kill all of us. If it had to be one country, I'm glad it was mine. I think we're entering a world where one person can kill all of us, And all of us could actually fix everything. These accelerated powers are creating a world where one of us can kill all of us, and all of us could actually feed, house, clothe, and educate every person on the planet. We have never been to this intersection before. What does that mean? We've never been more Godlike. So if we've never been more Godlike, and we're living more and more of our lives in a realm that's totally God-free, what does that mean? It sure means that the golden rule has never been more important. Do unto others as you wish them to do unto you. Because we now live in a world where we can do unto others farther, faster, deeper, cheaper than ever before, and others can do unto us. Putin just did unto us in a way no one's ever done before. So where does the golden rule come from? Um, It comes from strong families, I believe, and healthy communities. That's why the book ends there. But when I, I gave this talk... Uh, this part of my talk uh, as the graduation address at Olin College of Engineering last May. And I said to the parents there, I know what you're thinking. You're, you spent 200 grand so your kid could get an engineering degree. And they brought a knucklehead commencement speaker in who's preaching the golden rule. Is there anything more naive And my answer to them was, naivete is the new realism. Because I'll tell you what's really naive. Thinking we're going to be okay in a world where our lives have migrated to a realm that's God-free. And we, as humans, men and women, are incredibly God-like today if everybody doesn't get the golden rule. And if you want to know what keeps me up at night, it ain't Trump and it ain't Putin. It's that.
1: Extraordinary note to end on Tom, thank you